Well, I'm glad to be back. I uh, thought about these two Warns that's here. That's, I thought that was a real old generation name. I don't know, but then I see Diane, and I guess she got she married an old man, so uh, I guess that's how that Warn come about. And then it dawned on me, I'm almost there too. I don't know how all that works, but it's glad to have both the Warns with us today, isn't it? So nice to be with you. I look forward to it. I never get too uh, out of sorts about who comes to hear me. If I have the privilege of preaching the gospel, it's relevant to whoever and however many there are, so I'm going to be faithful to declare his message. Uh, Barbara and I was talking this morning. It was four weeks ago today, I believe, we commemorated the great Easter resurrection day when Christ came forth from the grave. Now, I don't know about you, but I live in the afterglow of Easter for several weeks. I was down in South Georgia during that Passion Week or Holy Week that began Palm Sunday down through the Easter uh, Sunday. And I always do a study of that week, and I, it just seems to me like there's so much we miss in that short time because uh, there's so much that takes place. In fact, in every day of that week, there's so many things that Jesus encountered and and had to endure, and then there's only one day where it's not anything recorded that he did. It was on Wednesday, and I've often thought perhaps that's when he went to the home of Martha and Mary and rested for what was about to take place and the trials that were facing him and the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane and the sweating of the great drops of blood falling down to the ground, the whipping, and finally the crucifixion and the great triumphant resurrection. I'd like to deal with one little aspect of that week, and uh, I don't know, you've been standing off and on, you're welcome to stand, but I want to read 17 verses, so I can, I'm going to welcome you just to be seated. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open with me to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. I believe the last nine chapters of John deal with the last week of his ministry on earth, and so this is in that span of time. Uh, in chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, uh, let us read, the, uh, read his word, and, and you may just remain seated. The first verse, an interesting verse, because he makes the statement, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. It's interesting, he makes a distinction of those who are his own in the world. He goes on to say, And supper being ended, the devil having now put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, girded himself. After that, he poured water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and wiped them with a the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered to him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. 
for he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you're not all clean. So after that he washed their feet and taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that is sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for your presence with us. You said a long time ago where two are gathered in your name, there would be a third. And we are so thankful that indelible presence is with us. We welcome you. We ask that your will would be accomplished in these next few moments as we have worshipped you in song, in prayer, in every aspect up until this very moment. May we continue our worship through your word and may your spirit have freedom in our midst. Add your blessing to the reading of your word, we pray in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. In this passage, Jesus, of course, was giving his final instructions to his disciples, who, and he had come into the world, as the word says, to give his life a ransom. Now, he was fully aware of what was taking place, and he was fully aware of what awaited him, in fact, he came on purpose for it. I think it was Oswald Chambers makes the point the cross did not happen to Jesus. He came on purpose for the cross. He was neither a prisoner nor a victim, even though it said the devil had put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. It also says God had given all things into his hands. So consequently, he not only had control of the situation, he had full authority over it. As you study the last days of his life, you, you're gripped with the reality that he's teaching us more than one way that the service that succeeds is sacrificial in nature. In fact, if you lead, read the chapter just previous to the one I read from in chapter 12, he speaks how death comes out of, a life comes out of death, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it brings forth much wheat or much fruit. Consequently, he said, I must be lifted up. And if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. This spoke key of the death that he should die. I'd like to sort of give you two thoughts uh, this morning. I'd like for you to note the, the mission of Christ or Christ's mission. But then I want you to notice the Christian's mandate. The mission is given to us throughout these verses. He came in the world to do what Paul says in Ephesians, to rehead the human race. You remember that the second Adam came to sacrificially reap on the cross what the first Adam sacrilegiously sowed in the Garden of Eden. And as a result of the first Adam, man became depraved. But through Jesus, the second Adam, we can find deliverance in him. And so when Jesus bowed down with the basin of water to wash the disciples' feet, they could not abide this. This was something beyond their understanding. After all, they were expecting even yet, I think, him to act as a king, to establish the ancestral throne of David. They were still in their mind thinking he was going to set himself up in the throne room and they would be a intricate part of the kingdom but now he acts as a slave 
and washing the feet, that was an act of a slave. And so Peter defiantly looked at him and said to him, Jesus, thou shalt never wash my feet. But then Jesus said something to him in a very tender rebuke. He said, if I wash thee not, you have no part of this with me. And Peter immediately recognized he spoke out of turn and he said, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. I believe by this very act, Jesus not only exposed, but he rebuked the self-centeredness of these disciples. And at the same time, he was giving us heaven's definition of true greatness. It's amazing to me in the day in which you and I live how we throw adjectives and superlatives around so very loosely and we talk about this one being the greatest such and such and this and the greatest this and this the greatest that. I want you to know what Jesus says is the greatest. He tells us, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister for the servant is not greater than his Lord. So the greatest amongst us are those who minister to us. Service and sacrifice offered in love are the credentials of the Christian, and Jesus epitomized both. In fact, he exemplified the lowliness of love when he bowed down and washed the disciples' feet. Now, if I can just jump to the very last verse that I read, he gives to us a bit of a benediction in that verse when he said, If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. You know, there's knowledge that runs along two lines. There's the knowledge of knowing the things of Christ, and then there's the knowledge of knowing Christ himself. We've reached an era where we don't mind accepting the principles of Christ. In fact, you hear it oftentimes, well, I believe we ought to just live by the Sermon on the Mount. I think it would be wonderful if we lived by the Sermon on the Mount. But I can tell you, you cannot live the Sermon on the Mount by the principles without the person. He who preached the sermon must be resident within you and me if we're going to live by the Sermon on the Mount. And we make statements like that sometimes and fail to hear what we're saying. It's always to me a tragedy when we fail to translate Christian knowledge into Christian practice. Jesus always was balanced in what he did, but too often we either know and fail to do or we try to do without really knowing if we're going to convince the world of Christ, and if we're going to be a testimony to the grace of God, there must be a balance between knowing and doing. And Jesus said that when he said, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And Jesus moves here from the king supreme to the kneeling servant. He rises up from the table, takes the towel, girds himself. Now, he does not gird himself in might. He girds himself in ministry because he who is meek is also mighty in his meekness. In fact, in lowliness, he demonstrates true lordship. And as I've thought about it oftentimes, to consider the one who created the heavens and the earth, the maker of worlds, now becomes the menial of man. The fact that God loves us so much that he who spoke it all into existence and created the heavens and the earth would condescend to offer himself a sacrifice for my sin and then send the Spirit of Christ to indwell me and live in me is beyond my understanding or comprehension. All I know is that royalty reached out, grabbed the rag, and the king bows down to wash the feet of not only the friends but also the foe. Because, see, he was washing the feet of the one who would run off. 
and for 30 pieces of silver betray him. Because when he washed Judas' feet, he went out and it was night. And the tragedy with Judas is he left the basin for his feet to make a noose for his neck. Because when he realized that he betrayed innocent blood, it was more than he could stand. He threw the 30 pieces of silver down and said, went out and hanged himself. And indeed, it was night and has then been ever since. Here Jesus exhibits, I think, a faith that no tomb could have ever imprisoned and a love that no force could ever conquer. Now, that is a thumbnail sketch, really, of the mission of Christ. He came to be not ministered to, but to be the minister, the servant of men. But then you notice when you talk about our mandate, it says, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, I want to say quickly, I do not believe, and I do not mind those who do this, practice washing feet. I don't believe he was establishing here another sacrament like water baptism or communion. I think he was given an example of the lowliness of the life that you and I are called to live. And he revealed not only the lowliness of love, he says we are to be examples. And he exemplified how we're to be examples. And so he says, I want you to do this as I have done to you, which speaks of the likeness of that lowliness that he demonstrated before these disciples. And you go back to verse 8 again, when Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. And he said, if I wash you not, you have no part of this with me. And Peter realized what he had said and how he had spoken out of turn. He said, don't wash my feet only, but my hands and my head. The towel in the hand is akin to the cross in the heart because this washing symbolized this cleansing from all sin that Jesus provided in his death and resurrection that was experienced on the day of Pentecost. It's interesting because God can forgive the sinner. He cannot forgive the sin. The sin has to be cleansed. The sinner can be forgiven. And on the day of Pentecost, they experienced this because they realized, following his example, he was not suggesting a mere imitation of Christ. He was rather suggesting, indeed, commanding an inhabitation of Jesus Christ who would come and live in them and reproduce his life through them. In other words, the beauty of Jesus must be seen in and through you and me. It's also interesting, I think it was Samuel Chadwick who made the statement that between the resurrection and 50 days later at the Pentecost, there is not recorded one soul being saved. However, they who tarried for the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost, and they all being in one room, and there came the sound of a rushing mighty wind that filled all the house where they were seated in cloven tongues like as a fire sat up on each of them, 120 of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately 3,000 souls were saved. 5,000 souls were saved at another count and there was added to the church daily such as should be saved. He knew how imperative it was they be cleansed from this sin, this perversion of the soul, and filled with the Holy Spirit so we can serve as he served. It's only when we're cleansed from sin, love is made perfect, 
We are free from all alloy, as the Bible teaches, that the believer now is able to translate the Spirit of Christ into a recognizable pattern of Christian believing. Christian needs to see the behavior. Let me take you to another place. If you remember over in the 10th chapter of Luke, and don't hold me to that, I believe it's 10th chapter of Luke, a lawyer came questioning Jesus. A lawyer came to Jesus and he asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus, if you read this last, last two verses of John chapter 2, it said Jesus didn't have any need of anybody talk to him about man because he knew all men and he knew what was in man. And he knew what was in man and he knew what was in this man. And so Jesus, knowing all men, sensed the insincerity of the question that the lawyer was asking. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, knowing he was a Jew, knowing he knew the law, he says, uh, what's written in the law? The law says, I'm to love my Lord thy God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbors myself. Jesus said, yes, that's right. You do this and you'll live. But then the lawyer got a little catty. He looked at Jesus and said, well, who's my neighbor? <laughs> who's my neighbor? You see, the Jews excluded the Gentiles from their neighborhood. You read over in the book of Leviticus, the children of thy people were their neighbors, and consequently, beyond the boundaries of Judaism, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, they had no love or concern. And so Jesus, knowing why he asked the question, who's my neighbor, he gives him the illustration of the Good Samaritan. You remember he tells us there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell amongst thieves. And the thieves beat him within an inch of death, robbed him, and took what he had, and went on their way, and there he left him by the, by the roadside more dead than alive. And all of a sudden, a priest comes along on the other side of the road and sort of casts a wistful eye that direction, looked and said, oh, yeah, moves on. He doesn't help him. And finally, a Levite comes along. He, too, looks at him, sees him writhing there in pain, nearing death, didn't have time to mess with him. But a Samaritan, the offscouring of society, the dogs, the lowly man, he came and saw what was going on. He went over to him. He ministered to his needs. He took care of him, finally carried him to an inn. And when he did, he gave the, inman, the, the head of the inn two pence to take care of him. He said, I'm on my journey, so I'm going to be coming back through here. He said, let me know how he is. And he said, when I come back, if there's any extra charge, I'll take care of it. And Jesus looked at this lawyer. said, which one was his neighbor? And he looked at him, had to, had to admit, well, he said, I guess he that showed mercy. He said, you go and do likewise. Maybe we ought to enlarge our tent. Maybe we ought to expound the neighborhood's boundaries. Now, I, I, I'm going to take a minute. I, 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 I think it's very important. I remember growing up in that environment of which I came from, 12 children, mom and dad. I do not remember ever Christian coming to our home telling us about Jesus or a pastor. Now, I never thought about it before because it didn't, I didn't have any spiritual understanding or Christian beliefs. I don't remember one preacher or pastor or Christian 
Now, I, I think I understood why they, what they thought. I mean, we were like the Samaritans, the offscours. We were as a, as an alcoholic family and, and, and profanity and a lot of vile, wicked environment there. I understood that, and we lived by the railroad tracks. We were on the wrong side of the roads. I was 15 years of age before I ever knew you had to be born again. In this Christian country, why was it so long? And then, of course, when my dad uh, ran over my little five-year-old sister and took her life, all of a sudden, things changed. There's a, there used to be a Boston store, clothing store in Urbana, and they were run by Jews. And they heard of our plight, and they literally outfitted six or seven of our family new clothes to go to the funeral who didn't even know us. I never got note of that. But what's more, there was a church, happened to be the Church of the Nazarene down the road about four or five miles, and the pastor and his congregation saw our need. They came. I've never gotten over it. And they took care of us during those days. I say that because I stand as a debtor. When I read Paul's statement, I'm a debtor in Romans. We all are debtors, whether we acknowledge it or not. I stand as a debtor to those who displayed the example of Christ before me. Now, I've got to tell you, I doubt that they even know, knew what they were doing. And I doubt that they even recognized I was even in the room. I was just a teenage kid standing off to the side. But I can tell you, when they come into that house, they brought a spirit of another world that invaded my domain. They didn't even know it. But I knew it. Because they were able to bring love and sympathy and peace in my world of hate and grief and anger. They acted as Jesus had told them to as an example. I want to be that example. I've never gotten over that. Life is a gift from God. And we will one day have to give an account of whether we have squandered it or invested it. And the only investment I'm confident that God is going to honor is a life poured out in service to others. Because you remember Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice, and he's calling you and me to be a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. And Christ's mission becomes our mandate. He's the great exemplar. In living and dying for others, he revealed the supreme purpose for life. That's why Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, said we're to be vessels, sanctified, honorable vessels, profitable for the use of the master. I probably told you, but I've never gotten away from the testimony of Samuel Logan Bringle, the great Salvation Army commissioner of another era, where he was said he was constantly praying, Lord, make, use me, Lord, use me, use me until God stopped him and said, no, pray God make me usable. <laughs> I can assure you if you're usable, God will use you, and maybe in ways you don't even know he's using you. 
In fact, probably it won't be until we get to eternity and we get before God that we'll understand how much God has used us. And so I'm just saying we are to be living sacrifices. There is a uh, tomb over in England uh, follow, that buried the great commentator uh, Adam Clark, great Methodist commentator. And there is a, on the tomb, there is inscribed a low burned candle, candle burnt way down, almost consumed the candle. And there's the epitaph that reads under it, I give light by being myself consumed. I give light by being myself consumed. Some months ago, I may have shared, but I, some months ago, I was standing in a pulpit looking back. I see the strengthening the body back here. But the words across their church sanctuary was, the world does not care how much you know until it knows how much you care. I thought, what an what a epitaph. The world needs to see us as we walk with Christ. We are challenged in this passage to take the towel and follow his example and live a life of service. Those who invaded my world did that figuratively. They came and brought the towel, washed my feet, and I've never been the same since. I don't know, I've been researching her life a little more, but. I don't know if you ever heard of a lady by the name of Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was quite a young lady. I think she was raised in Ireland, and as a young girl, she wanted to go over to India to minister to the needs of India. And the needs that she was ministering to were the little orphanage, uh, little girls. They called them the temple prostitutes, literally little girls that were being used in the temple of the Hindus, which, by the way, has now, according to the law been stopped some years ago but she loved those little girls and she felt God calling her to rescue them from the, that kind of a life and she built an orphanage over there along with others and she housed these little temple prostitute girls but she discovered not long after getting that orphanage established the little boys were being used as well and so she built another orphanage for the little boys and anyhow she was faithfully working to rescue these children. One day, having been there a good many years now, in fact, uh, she served 55 years, I believe, in India, but when she was 63 years old, she twisted her ankle in a rut of some kind, and like you and I, we would just assume, well, be a few weeks, laid up a bit, maybe get the swelling down, get back to work. That wasn't the way it was with Amy Carmichael. As a result of that terrible ankle twisting, she was bedfast for the last 20 years of her life. 63 years, it happened she was, so she lived to be about 83 years old, and for those 20 years, she was bedfast. She loved those Indians so much, she would bathe herself in coffee to try to darken her skin so she could be more appealing to those dark-skinned Indians. Having been laying there in that bed, she wrote 16 books. And I've got to challenge you, if you've never read any of her writings, you will enrich your life if you do. And as she was lying there one day, they brought a cup of coffee on a saucer to her. And all of a sudden, as they were sitting it down, that, saucer, that cup sort of jostled 
and some of that coffee spilled out into the saucer. Amy Carmichael saw God in everything. And as she watched that happen, tears began to run down her face. And said she looked up to heaven and said, Oh God, make me so if I'm ever jostled, nothing but sweetness will pour out of me. She was an example. Can I tell you, if we live by the example that he left us, our witness will be clear, our message will be relevant, souls will be saved, and God will be exalted if we live. And so he gives the benediction. For the Christian life begins with assurance. If you know these things, it advances to action. Happy are you if you do them, and it ends in approval. The word happy there is blessed. <laughs> in other words, Christ pronounces you blessed. Boy, I'd rather have that accolade than anything in the world. Not everybody's going to do that. But God's going to do that. I want him to be pleased with my life. I just wanted to share with you that we have a world that is in desperate need of seeing Jesus. And I'm not sure, and you'll love me if I tell you this, because I'm a part of this we call the church. But I'm not sure the church is fulfilling the purpose of which God wants us in the world. And I have to take great inventory in my own life when I talk to you about these things. God wants us to show the beauty of Christ. He has no other means of saving a lost world except through his church. And when I use the word church, I'm not using the word denomination because Jesus doesn't. It's the called out ones, the children of God, the ecclesia, the separated ones. Let the beauty of Jesus I've asked if, Tom, if we could sing at least a couple verses of page 461. It's a, it's a familiar hymn, Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer. This is my constant prayer. I wonder if you could stand with me now and bow your head as we're ready to sing this song.